So I feel like the flight attendant here, I'm going to tell you where this flight is going, but <laughs> in case anyone is on the wrong plane, um, but welcome. My name is Michelle Deacon. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the communications director at MLAC. Um, this session is It's Time, Pushing the Envelope, Centering Racial Justice in Civil Legal Aid Advocacy. I'm going to give a very brief introduction of our incredible panel in the interest of time, but I would really encourage you to click the read more button on the conference page so you can read their full incredible bios. Um, our moderator today is Wayona Nelson Davies. Wayona is the managing attorney of Community Legal Aid's Worcester and Fitchburg offices. And in addition to that role, she also directly supervises several special projects, including the Asian Outreach and Advocacy Product, the Medical Legal Partnership with UMass Memorial Healthcare, and the Corey Reentry Project, and the Veterans Legal, Legal Assistance Project. We also have today Janet Chung. Janet is the Advocacy Director at Columbia Legal Services a nonprofit civil legal aid program that advocates for laws that advance social, economic, and racial equity for people living in poverty in Washington state. And finally, we have Robbie McEwen. Robbie is the legal director at Nebraska Appleseed Center for Law in the Public Interest. So thank you all for being here today and taking the time to speak with us. And I will turn it over to Wayona. Thank you so much, Michelle. Um, and welcome everyone to this um, discussion. I'm really excited about it because I'm ready with my pen to learn a lot um, from these two dynamic speakers and what their organizations are doing towards um, racial justice. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd like to start with identities because um, in doing anti-racism work, I think it's important for you to decide what identities are important to you. Um, and so I want us to get to know a little bit about our speakers before they tell us more about their work. Um, so Janet, I'll start with you. Um, if you can share with us your preferred pronouns and then identities that are important to you. Who is Janet to Janet? Thank you, Wayona. Um, first, let's make sure to turn off the mute. <laughs> um, so it's a, a great way to uh, introduce us. And I use pronouns she, her. Um, I also identify as um, a Korean American daughter of immigrants, um, born in Maryland, raised in Texas, lived on both coasts, <laughs> and, and now in Seattle. That's me. Thank you, Janet. And Robbie. Who do you yeah. say you are? Which identities are important to you? Yeah, thanks, Wayona. Um, so hi, everybody. I'm Robbie McEwen. Uh, the identities that are important to me, um, number one is dad. Uh, and even though we've had better times in recent years, unfortunately, number two probably is Nebraska Cornhuskers fan. Uh, I, I grew up in Denver uh, and went to law school in Nebraska. So I'm one of the few that is a Nebraskan by choice and not birth. And so I. I hold Nebraskan uh, as, as an identity with pride. All right, well, thank you all for starting us on that note. I've gotten to know a little bit more about you today myself. Um, so now to start the conversation, I want to start at the beginning, the why, right? 
why this work. Um, at Legal Aid, our hands are quite full. Um, we have to work on social and economic justice issues. In addition to those issues, why would you say it is important to center racial justice in civil legal aid advocacy? And I'll start with you, Robbie. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Wayona. Um, so I, I do think it's critical to center um, racial equity and racial justice in, in the work that we do. Uh, and I think a lot of folks attending probably are working on similar issues, but looking across just the work that we do at Appleseed in child welfare or healthcare or immigrants and communities or economic justice, each, each separate issue uh, has some kind of disturbing but not unexpected trends with race, racial disparities that are just apparent in every aspect of the work. And I, I know that it's, it's a tired analogy and you probably heard it a thousand times before, but failing to address the racial inequities uh, underlying each of those systems is, is sort of like putting a Band-Aid on a, on a bullet wound. Um, you can only do so much good until you try to get to the root cause at the heart of the issues. And so, so many of the systemic inequities that we see uh, in this work um, it would, be, it would be much more effective if we can address the root cause of that, which in many cases, the primary cause would be racial inequity and systemic, uh, systemic oppression. Thank you. And Janet, do you have anything to add to that? Why is it important for you and your organization? Yeah, I'll just piggyback on what Robbie said. I mean, we, for years, you know, um, folks have noticed, um, gee, there is this strong correlation between poverty and um, people who are in unrepresented um, ethnicities, races, um, etc. And it's, uh, you know, it's what do they say? It's the definition of um, insanity to keep doing what you're <laughs> doing without changing anything. And I think, um, you know, it is well past time that, uh, and I'm glad that folks are kind of waking up and seeing like, okay, these are not just correlations um, and we're just going to observe them. Um, and keep talking about, gee, it's just too bad that certain populations are disproportionately impacted. Um, and it's, it, it's really important, um, as Robbie said, the, the root causes and um, really learning more about the why, focusing and starting with, with the why um, is really the place you have to be um, because otherwise you are just um, uh, you know, fixing things, um, and not to say that's not important work as well, but if you want to have lasting impact beyond individuals, you've got to start thinking about the systems um, that are in play. You're muted, Wayana. Thank you. I was going on. I was, you had me fire up. I was ready to go. <laughs> um, so I'll stick with you, um, Janet, because in thinking of systems, um, we've learned, you know, a lot of us are learning more about racism and how it's created and maintained. And we've learned about the systems of racism um, and how it's sort of created and maintained at different levels, the internalized, interpersonal, institutional, and structural levels. Um, so when we talk about this idea of pushing the envelope towards racial equity, um, it seems to one require change, um, like we all talked about, but also a systems thinking strategy um, to be able to move forward um, with racial equity. Um, I read an article that you shared with me, Janet, that you wrote in the MIE journal, and you referenced Just Lead um, Washington organization race, race equity toolkit that also identifies 
different levels of work, um, you know, sort of contract to um, contrary to the um, levels of racism. And so those levels include individual, interpersonal, organizational, community, and systemic. How has Columbia Legal Services made changes at some of these different levels as part of its quest um, in centering racial justice and equity? Right, and Michelle, this is where you can advance the slides so folks can look at um, these different levels that Wayne was referencing. And um, yeah, I, uh, maybe I can speak to this by starting with um, telling you where our journey um, at uh, Columbia Legal Services started. And I guess I'll just say, first of all, that this is not intended to be a progression, right? Um, but just a description of all the different levels of work. It can look overwhelming um, for sure. And we can talk about what that might look for, uh, look like for you and your organization. But for CLS, um, I would say that it really, um, the, our work started in earnest um, when um, there was a group of people of color who um, came together um, and they named themselves the collective. And they um, had, you know, lived uh, experiences with this organization, had seen lots of people of color uh, come and go, um, and um, started to realize uh, that, you know, they were not individuals experiencing um, things, you know, on their own. And I, I should also say we have five offices around the state. So there are some, you know, uh, challenges, I think, to, to connecting um, in the way that folks did. But um, in any case, um, the things came to boil and um, folks got together and wrote um, what is now known internally as the collective letter. And it was a letter, kind of a, a letter of a, a really powerful statement about um, what people of color in our organization had been experiencing, um, treatment by management, um, you know, interpersonal <clears throat> issues. Um, and that was really the, the genesis of it. It wasn't um, actually so much about what the work um, we were doing, um, you know, or issues there, but it started with, I guess it was the um, somewhere the circle of interpersonal and organizational, right? Issues with recruiting, retention, um, microaggressions, things like that. Um, from that work, um, so that's really the origin. Um, from that initial letter, um, the organization responded um, by forming uh, or helping the collective um, and other. Uh, staff form subgroups that identified the um, the issues, um, looked at the issues that had been raised at the in the collective letter, um, and organized to come up with solutions, like specific solutions <laughs> to address each of those. Um, I will say that you know it's on paper, and it was I think that it's been it was before my time, but so it was um, probably about six years ago. Um, and every time I look at them, you know, some in some ways it's depressing because I'm like, oh. We're still working on that, <laughs> um, but I think that is the nature of the work, right? So, um, so that is sort of on the um, institutional level, what uh, where our work started. What has come from that is um, some concrete changes. We hired an equity director. Um, we and um, that person has led internal discussions that have really helped develop people's um, understanding of race equity and identify what their individual work is. Okay, so the the circle on the right. Um, you know, we've had trainings uh, about internal um, unconscious bias. Um, so kind of getting at the, the brain that's over there on the right. Um, but I think that's really just a, a starting point for understanding. So it's, you know, it's an ongoing process. And then um, as, to, as we get to the other systemic and community um, levels of work, um, that has also been a process very still much, uh, very much still 
a, a work in progress, um, but what it has looked like is um, developing a community engagement um, model, um, hiring people whose job it is to connect with community, understanding that if we are not um, connecting with the people who are impacted by our work, then we have a problem. You know, we, we don't wanna be the lawyers sitting at our desk, well, we sometimes are <laughs> typing away at our computers, but um, we really need to, in order to address the problems that people are facing, um, we need to be um, engaging with community and seeking answers um, and identifying the problems, um, listening by listening. Um, and then the work um, to, in order to address those problems that are identified by community um, is systemic. And so for us, we, that looks like policy work. It looks like um, strategic litigation. Um, so sorry, a very long answer, but uh, we kind of at this point, you know, a couple of years in have, I think, lots of pokers in the fire on all of these levels. And I guess my main point is um, it can seem overwhelming, but I think you just start wherever you are. Um, and those are some of the things that we've done internally. No, that was great. It wasn't long at all because I think, especially for these type of workshop, it's helpful to sort of understand the process. But also, even though it's overwhelming, I think the point you're making is you have to be doing work at all of these levels for it to work, right? So I think this is very helpful to see the visual, but also understand different things um, you have been able to do as an organization. Um, and I'm going to come back to talk more about community um, in a second, but I wanted to give Robbie a chance to see if um, your organization have gone through a similar process or what is your process for sort of looking at race equity work? Yeah, thanks, Leona. Uh, and actually hearing Janet <laughs> describe some of the, the things that uh, Columbia Legal Services has gone through and done is it's, it's like looking in a mirror. It's like, oh, wow, that's great. We're not the only ones uh, that sort of feel like this work can, it, there's just so much to do, but um, in, in earnest, I think we've been much more intentional about our race equity work at Appleseed, probably in the last five or six years as well. And I, <laughs> I, I started at Appleseed in 2011, and at that point we had, I think, 10 staffers, uh, maybe 11, but we're almost at 50 now. And so I, I do think that I, I track the development of our race equity work a little bit along those lines. So historically, we started as an organization in our founder's basement in the late 90s with uh, one attorney, and then the first person we hired was an IT specialist, um, and then hired several more attorneys. And for the first probably decade of our organization's existence, it was attorneys and a couple of other administrative staff that were organizing, litigating, doing policy work, writing grants. Um, so not to make excuses, but I think our race equity work began in earnest really when we began to hire uh, staff that would be able to take some of those uh, non-legal burdens off the attorneys. And especially when we started hiring more community organizers uh, to engage more on the community side in our work. And I think that has been reflected in the community feedback that we get on our work, the community engagement that we do, and then just identifying what is important to the communities that we engage with. Because attorneys are good at a lot of things, but uh, community organizers are better at many, if not most things, um, than some of the attorneys. Um, and so probably about five or six years ago, we had identified race equity as one of the priorities within our organization. And we wanted to, I, we wanted to work on the 
serious levels that Janet described, both internally, we needed to take a look at ourselves. We also wanted to do, take a look at the work that we were doing externally to make sure that everything that we were working on sort of filters through that lens. Because again, as I said, there's so many different aspects of structural racism, uh, both within the work that we're doing, but also internally in, uh, within personal dynamics at the organization. Um, like we needed to improve ourselves if we we're going to improve others. And so I, I like the name, the collective, that's really cool. Um, we, have a, we have a race equity committee, um, which has two subcommittees, so less cool, but I, I, may, I may have to steal that. I like the collective, um, but um, each of those committees has focused on different aspects of our internal work. And so for example, one of the first tasks that we did was just going through our internal organizational like employee handbook and identifying different aspects uh, of our, or our organization's policies that may not be the most race forward uh, policies to have as an organization. And so like uh, one clear example that sort of sticks in my head, uh, it was interesting because we do a lot of work in foster care. We, would, we had just finished working on policies to try and ensure that uh, the definition of extended family was broadened in our state to encompass fictive kin, um, which I, I believe is a very race forward policy within Nebraska, at least in the communities that we work with based on community feedback. But then Appleseed's own bereavement leave policies were limited to the nuclear family. Um, so identifying just internally structural things um, after we had been advocating externally for structural change, uh, we thought it would be good to align ourselves in that way. Um, and over the over the last probably four or five years, that is that's grown from just taking a look at ourselves. Uh, I think we've always been fellow travelers working on big important issues, but I think probably the one of the bigger bigger changes that we've had is seeking community engagement and feedback at various levels of our work. Um, that's that's a newer thing over the last probably three years, and I think it's really helped us push the ball forward on this. And so as an organization, we do a strategic plan every three years. And the last one that we did was the first time that we actually put it out to community partners that we work with in the community and asked, like, here's what we're going to be working on for the next three years. Are, are we working on the right things? Uh, is this the, are these the right priorities that align with what the community needs? Um, and then I, we can talk about some of the, the various tools that we've developed later um, later on in the presentation. But I think that's really when the, the shift occurred organizationally is when, when we really started leaning on community organizers and our community partners to help us hold that mirror up to ourselves. Thanks. And I think um, what I'm hearing from you and Janet is you really have to be willing to do the work and do the work at so many different levels and, um, and have people on board. I want to pause before we get into community because I both of you mentioned community and I think again as legal services organizations we're hired to be attorneys and that's not the first thing we want to do or know how to do. Um, but before we do that I do want to let the audience know that we're going to have um, some time during this um, presentation for questions and even at this, this, this discussion I want it to be more like a round table so hang in there you can start putting your questions in the chat or we're going to open it up for you to unmute yourself and ask directly as well so if you're you know jotting down questions now please know that there will be an opportunity for you to uh, engage um, so let's um Robbie I want to stick with you a little bit to talk more about the community engagement work you've done and walk us through a little bit about sort of how it fit 
within your advocacy structure. Um, talk a little bit about changes you had to make. Because um, I hear from you know attorneys when you think of doing community engagement, um, you know that they have full case law. How, where are we going to fit this in? We have grant requirements, you know, and that's not part of the grant requirement. Why is this important to our work when we're already turning away so many people? We don't want to open the floodgates and then we can take on the cases. So all of those are concerns attorneys have. Um, so tell us maybe a little bit about did you have to make some shifts to your advocacy structures? Um, did you do that in response to a community need or did you change your structure and then sort of got the community input? So walk us through a little bit of your process in community engagement. Yeah, so it, it is a little bit of all. Um, so if you looked at an organization or flow chart of how this works, it would be real confusing. Um, but uh, just just walking through our, our structured Appleseed a little bit, um, it, it is sort of bubbled up through various various ways. And so it, in, in certain times, it has been in response to community needs. Um, I think the biggest overarching theme probably from our organization's history to where we're at now is is just sort of re-reevaluating our advocacy structure and what we can and should be should be doing um, and not to hate on lawyers too much because I think we have a lot on the call today but sometimes uh, lawyers have a way of finding a litigation solution to lots of problems even when that may not be the most amenable or best solution uh, forward and so I think one thing that's really been eye-opening for for me at least uh, and working at Appleseed is the just the various ways that we've been able to step in and support uh, advocacy efforts that already exist on the ground. And I think that really started, like I mentioned, when we we, we our community organizers uh, enforced throughout the state. We have one office, so we do not have the multiple office issue. So uh, we have, I, I guess, since COVID, we now have like 39 or 40 offices, but. Um, communication, we've been pretty aligned and our community organizers have been pretty clear about community needs at various cross program meetings that we've had. Uh, and so uh, when there's already existing leadership structures or there could be leadership structures within communities, um, there may be a litigation solution, but sometimes the better solution is providing, um, providing resources and assistance to the, the people that are in those communities on the ground. And I think that's been more of the macro level change that um, I've seen. So concrete examples, um, we, we've worked on, uh, probably in the last three years, we've been fiscal sponsor for, I think, seven different organizations that are local throughout the state that are, that are community led, community driven. Um, and we haven't been uh, playing the role of we are going to litigate to address some of these problems, but we're going to use our connections as an organization to set community organizations up with funders that we have relationships with, with resources that we have to bring to bear. Um, even if they're not legal organizations, we, we hold a lot of the relationships that can help those smaller community organizations uh, survive and thrive. And so that has been, I think, one of the more successful strategies that I did not anticipate when I started at Appleseed was uh, we, have, we have worked with a lot of community orgs and that has been, I think, probably one of our most successful advocacy strategies um, because we are also building partners um, in the work that we care on, um, sustainable partners that can last uh, a longer period of time as opposed to organizing. Um, our organizers refer to it as the parachute model where you like parachute in and then parachute out after you're done on an issue. Um, 
we found it's really helpful to have long-term partners that will show up at the state legislature or within Congress uh, at your side when you're advocating and actually more persuasive when they're the community that is being affected as opposed to, uh, I didn't share this, but I, I am a white man. Uh, me, me uh, trying to convince people about the issues of these various communities is not as persuasive as somebody that has lived experience. And so building that power, I think is one of the the ways that I think has been most successful. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was awesome. Um, I'm going to give um, Janet an opportunity to sort of tell us about how community engagement fits within your advocacy structure and maybe sort of your process and get into it. Yeah, so much of what Robbie was describing really resonates for, for me as well. And I want to just um, show you a, a slide, uh, partly because it's pretty, but it's, uh, <laughs> um, Michelle, it's the next one um, that just talks about um, organizational change on a continuum. This is, um, some folks may be familiar with this. It's, uh, these concepts are from, um, uh, adapted from a document that uh, describes a continuum on becoming an anti-racist multicultural organization. I don't know if she's able to advance the slide there. Um, but I want to show the connection between what we're talking about right now, which is, you know, starting to talk about how does it change our actual work and um, what, uh, who comprises our organization, right? Um, and I spoke about how in CLS, it really, the genesis, a lot of the genesis was when we had enough people of color who, um, um, who were observing what was happening to, to them within our organization. And um, I won't read this whole thing, but you can see there's sort of this notion of um, why uh, diversity um, matters and isn't also is not enough <laughs> to really transform um, the work that you're doing. But it starts with, you know, it does start with the people that you have in your organization. Um, are they, um, you know, the only, <laughs> I'm actually still the only um, of my race in my organization of about 40 people at this point, but um, you know, uh, there are many more people of color. I think we may actually be um, uh, the majority and, and people, many more people in leadership. I think that's been um, really important to get past this tokenism, right? And then what we're really talking about in all of this, whether it's internal or in our work is about shifting power. Um, uh, I have just felt very um, privileged to be learning about um, this work um, as part of my work. I feel like I, you know, it's critical and I feel very lucky to be able to do that. And to, um, so for me, thinking about shifts in power, um, and again, maybe familiar to some of you, but um, that was really kind of transformative for me to think about um, my role as a lawyer um, in a community, in a lawyers, legal um, the legal community as an institution, right? The legal system. Um, and uh, thinking of us as a legal aid as a system, <laughs> um, we are complicit in it um, by trying to be good lawyers and filing the cases that our grant, our funders tell us to file. We're all participating in that system, right? What can we do to not just kind of um, do what we've been taught to do, but really transform it? Um, and ultimately, like I said, it's about shifting power internally. It's about who's in control, who's making decisions. Um, it's about our clients. Um, is it um, the old model of lawyer on top um, where lawyer figures out the, you know, cool technical legal strategy and slowly builds case law? You know, that was really powerful and important, right? The work that NAACP, Thurgood Marshall, very methodically over decades uh, changed the case law. 
Um, but this vision is a little different. It's not us with our expertise coming in, uh, again, uh, just piggybacking on Robbie's parachuting to save the day. We are not saviors, right? Um, we are um, coming in when asked, we are, instead of lawyers on tap, I like to say lawyers on top, we're lawyers on tap. Um, we should be using our legal skills um, and be at the disposal of the community. But again, how do you do that when you are sitting in your office, you've got your grants uh, to write and to fulfill um, and um, you know the person to hire, whatever, all the, the daily things that, um, that come up for us. And so um, as you, um, as an organization, um, progress in your anti-racist journey, you get to a place where, um, and we certainly aren't there yet, where your community is, is you like you know we talk about community and a lot of discussion internally about what do we mean by that what's community learning what and um this recognition that there's still an us versus them and it's because we don't have people with the lived experience um that aligns with the people that we are trying to serve who are impacted by these systems we're not there yet um we're, but that's where the hiring and who you're working with um on your own staff matters right and it's not just Oh, I feel more comfortable because, you know, you understand my Asian parent jokes or whatever. Um, it, it it is much more deep and um, fundamental than that. And not to say that we can't effectively serve and be lawyers for people that we are not like, not at all. But just um, I wanted to connect up. Um, you know, again, it's not just representation and diversity. It's really about um, changing the work, understanding what the work looks like. Um, and I wanted to just give a few examples of where um, we have intentionally like been thinking about this power shifting as our goal um, and not winning the case, right? <laughs> That's hard as lawyers. We love winning cases. <laughs> we like creating new case law. Um, and, you know, I sometimes wonder, am I just trying to make myself feel better by redefining success <laughs> in a different way? But um, I, I don't actually think that. I think sometimes you, um, you know, the win is about connection. It's about building power, shifting power, uh, raising up the issue um, in a new way, right? Um, so I, I said I would give some examples. And one is um, we have been involved with forming um, some new farm worker uh, unions in our state. Um, what that work looks like is not work that we had done before, right? It's um, like corporate filings and union formation and filing, um, you know, it's labor law. Um, some of you may practice that. I know there are restrictions on um, some of that for LSE funded folks, but, um, you know, that uh, what it looked like was, you know, again, connecting with people who uh, started with people, you know, a typical case, like people had been retaliated against um, at a particular farm and they were starting to organize. And so what could we do to help them? We could file the lawsuit. We could file a standard you know, a class action case, um, and we certainly continue to do that as well. But we really wanted to not just um, do the case, win the case, give them some damages and leave, um, but make it sustainable. And so from that work, um, we helped them form um, what is now a really powerful union, Familias Unidas por Justicia, um, FUJ is easier to say, <laughs> how we refer to it. Um, and they have, um, in the past year, been working with another group of um, agricultural workers, um, this time um, working in some of the food, fruit packing sheds um, and helping them to, to form the union. And so we're still in the process of, again, helping them do the filings, um, filing um, 
challenges to um, uh, to labor law violations at their workplace as they try to organize, right? Um, and again, the goal is that they will then be a thriving union where they don't need us. You know, they will have their own ability to talk with management, get what they need without the lawyers needing to come in and sue or, you know, being there if they need us. But um, one other example I will give is um, a group that formed um, in King County, which is where Seattle is, when um, there was an effort um, to build a new um, youth jail. There is a kind of decrepit old building where um, juvenile court was held and where they're housed um, when they are detained. And, you know, from the court and sort of the legal establishment perspective, it's like, you know, this is a bad building. We really need better facilities for the judges, for the court personnel, for the people coming through the system um, and a nicer place to detain youth. <laughs> um, well, guess what? That's not really what <laughs> the youth who are being targeted by the systems um, we're interested in. They don't really want a nicer cell um, or a prettier courthouse. Um, so there was a movement um, called um, EPIC um, and the Prison Industrial Complex that formed. And I will confess that um, I was at a different organization at the time when this organization formed. And uh, it took me a while to really understand like, what, you know, what do you mean no jail? We can't not have a jail and it needs to be nice, right? Uh, and to understand that, you no, know, they're really going for the the big picture end goal. Um, if you stop building places to house and um, lock away youth, that's gonna, um, you know, well, what's the real problem there? It's not that it's not nice enough. <laughs> it is that people are being sent into that system. Um, so anyway, what they asked my organization to do was to actually come in and um, challenge, you know, is there any way we can challenge the building of this? Um, you know, we're like, well, I don't know. And somebody, I don't, again, before my time, so I'll give credit to my colleagues, but um, realized, well, right now the issue is we need to delay this process, whatever we can do to delay this process. So a couple of different um, legal challenges were filed and the one we were um, involved in um, actually ended up being about land use. And my poor colleague uh, a little bit got thrown under the bus uh, when he had to go argue a, um, the appeal in this case. And it was all about, you know, environmental law and all of it. But um, so <laughs> um, we could have done better to support him. Uh, we lost, but again, we uh, we lost as a part of the strategy strategy to win, which was delaying it. Um, did ultimately get built, but it also gained momentum. And, you know, people like me who really didn't get it um, and were like, why, you know, don't we want better facilities? Um, the time of that organizing, I think uh, the win was really getting people to understand the goal, right? Um, and building power within those organizers. We were really just the tool for them not very effective if you look at it from a traditional legal perspective of we're here to win the case. Um, but uh, it um, provided the support that they asked for and that they, they wanted. Yeah, I think the challenge and um, both of you touched on this sort of unlearning that goal as a um, legal advocate to win. 
Um, and, you know, that may not ultimately be, you know, the only goal for the community. So I think that's a great point. And how do we unlearn that, right? As legal advocates, um, I think it's a tough thing to do, um, but it's worth it if we want to do this work. We're going to have questions, but I just want to um, acknowledge a comment uh, made in the chat. And then Sarah will get to your questions later. We may even answer that question along the way. Um, so Pat Baker, um, just acknowledge we have an excellent panel, but just want to make sure that we brought in language to include non-attorney advocates um, in conferences in general, because there are some who do systemic advocacy work and community law in. Um, so she does just want to acknowledge that. And I think Robbie did mention community organizing organizers at his organization. I don't believe that all of them are, or they are um, attorneys as well. So I did want to acknowledge that. Um, thanks for um, raising that point, Pat. I want to keep um, sort of talking now more about process, right? So you've talked about some of the things you've done and how you're able to do it. Um, but, you know, in speaking, and we haven't heard from the audience, but we think of our process, we most of us still do things traditionally as legal aid attorneys. You go online or you walk into our offices um, or you, you know, call and fill out an application with your legal issue. Um, and sometimes, you know, some of these um, racial equity, community impact work comes through that way. Some of us do presentation at community organizations um, and we have some relationship. But I want to understand a little bit more about your process in determining what are your priorities areas? Are you doing everything when it comes to social economic justice? Is that your strategy? Um, what kind of cases um, do you take in? And then how do you sort of decide when to take on racial equity impact work in addition to everything else you're doing? Um, so Robbie, I'll start with you to sort of walk us through your process um, and what's working with that process and what may be challenging about it. Yeah, thanks, Wayana. And I think we, as part of our process, we have a, a couple of slides. Um, one is a, a race impact uh, assessment, and then we have a guide as well. Uh, and that's sort of, and again, uh, I wasn't lying, the Race Equity Committee uh, at Appleseed is, is the creator of good things um, and has really driven this work forward for us. And so these are products, uh, examples of the, the Race Equity Committee that we have at Appleseed in sort of restructuring how we work and we do things. And so we have our uh, race equity uh, guide. Uh, it's sort of guiding principles. Uh, this was created by our organizing team at Appleseed to, to make sure that race equity was at the forefront of our discussions and our meeting norms and the way that we discuss issues internally. We have a, we have a lot of meetings, I'm sure you all do too, internally with staff. Um, where we're discussing what we're doing and how we're going to do it. And so the, the guide specifically um, is, um, and I think it's maybe on the next slide. Oh, maybe. Oh, one more down. Yes. Oh, this is the, so this is the assessment tool um, that we use. And so this is a little bit more detailed. And we've just started really utilizing this um, in our legal and policy work within uh, the past two years. And so before Appleseed structure internally, uh, we, if we were going to take on a systemic piece of work, either policy or litigation, uh, we go to seek our board's approval. And so we've actually had to do a lot of education uh, of our board and work with our board on the importance of race equity and 
diversity inclusion and making sure those are the forefront of our work. And so this is just a, uh, a sort of checklist that attorneys or organizers or policy staff will go through when we're working on or have identified a new issue. And so we submit this to the board with our request in, in addition to budgets. Um, they care about money too, I guess. Uh, but we also want to make them care about why the issue is important and how it's pushing racial uh, equity forward in our state. And so this impact assessment is one of the tools that our race equity uh, team put together. Um, and so we fill this out and then present it to the board. And it helps us sort of prioritize um, important issues. And we, uh, we and I'm, I'm sure you all uh, have competing needs and demands upon your time. Uh, and there are more issues to work on than you have hours in the day. And so this, this was intended to just sort of make sure that we were identifying and working on the issues that were most core to our mission as an organization and we're pushing this forward or this work forward. Um, and then I think the next slide, or maybe there's, this is a two pager. Um, yeah, this is the this is the thing that is in every meeting room. Uh, it's when we're actually in the office. Um, it's informed the way that we've drafted our uh, norm. We we have draft norms um, that we we have, and so this really sort of guides how we we conduct every single meeting at Appleseed. And again, we're much more structured now than we used to be when we had like nine people. Uh, so we have meeting structures and. Uh, like the way that we conduct meetings has become much more uniform. And so this is done in every single meeting where we go through the meeting topics, what we're working on. And then at every meeting that we have, uh, the last agenda item that we have is the racial impact assessment. And we go through the items that we just discussed and put it through this, this lens uh, to try and ensure that uh, we are talking about and working on the issues that will, will help push racial equity forward. And so, uh, adjusted our meeting norms a little bit, uh, but this has been really helpful and I think has raised some excellent discussions. And it makes sure that it's also, uh, as I feel like I'm blabbering on, uh, it's a great way to make uh, lawyers shut up too when you have cross-programmatic meetings. Um, it empowers people that are non-attorneys in those meetings to actually have their voice heard because I, I and most of the attorneys at Appleseed, we no longer are the ones that are actually directly in the communities. The structure that we have is that our organizers are the ones doing that work. Um, and so when we're calling for the and identifying affected groups and individuals and how they're identified, um, and what the racial inequity is, this is really where our community organizers are experts. And so it's a, it's a great way to make sure that uh, our, the feedback and directions that we're going in as an organization are equitable, but it also makes sure that we're having all of the voices at the table heard and all of the, all of the perspectives heard. Uh, so organizers, policy workers, um, and also attorneys. So it's, it's been a pretty helpful tool for us to use. So those procedurally are how we do things. We, we have very structured meetings now which sometimes can be good. And also sometimes it's, it would be better if they were a little more free flowing. And then we, for every new issue that we take on, we try to put it through the racial impact assessment guide because we've, through our strategy uh, development have identified that as our core priority. And so everything that we work on, hopefully we'll be driving towards that. 
Thank you. Um, you said a lot of grace, and I'm going to come back to you because I'm looking at like the guide in every room and sort of empowering other voices within those meetings. So we'll come back um, to that because I want to ask you a follow-up question. Um, but before I do that, um, Janet, is um, CLS um, process the same? What's your process in sort of determining what cases and priority um, to take on? So I'm going to ask the, um, Michelle if you could back up to um, a slide that says CLS intended impact. Thank you. Uh, so I wanted to start here because um, the answer to how do we decide what work we do um, really changed. A couple of years ago, we underwent strategic planning um, and um, had a were able to participate in a great training program with a nonprofit um, kind of management consultant group called BridgeSpan. Um, I think they were the nonprofit arm of the Bain consultants, if folks have heard of them. But in any case, they really um, led us through, along with a strategic planning consultant, um, zeroing in on these questions. Um, if folks um, are familiar with this idea of theory of change, it really is just kind of zooming back out and you know going back to why, why do we exist? Who are we here to serve? And what is it that we do that is going to um, lead to that vision that we you know, have in our lovely vision statement, right? Um, and so we we started, um, you know, again, by backing up and just addressing that. And that actually really helped us clarify where we were going to focus. Um, so this, again, it sounds pretty high level, but um, again, we, we are here to um, work for people, for and with people living in poverty, um, uh, et cetera, working with them. We're going to, these are the things we're going to do. We do class actions in our state. That is how our civil legal aid is set up. We've got our um, close partners who do the direct legal services, Northwest Justice Project. Um, and uh, the uh, a couple, this is a very quick background on our history, but why we do what we do. We were actually created in order to preserve that ability to do class actions, to do policy advocacy. Um, so I think someone had a question in the chat about um, funding and um, so we are, again, really lucky that we, my organization is created to do that, but we are still very close partners in determining what the work is um, with our partners um, who are doing the direct services. So anyway, um, the, the what is really where we kind of had that aha. Um, we strive to be community led. The, uh, when we do that work, we do the policy work, we do the class action, the result should be that community power is unleashed and that we transform the systems. Um, so if you um, could forward to the next slide, uh, just to get a little more granular, what came next um, was we looked at, um, well, actually, I'm not going to talk about this slide right yet, but um, we, uh, we had to look at how we were deciding what cases we would take and what funding we would take. Um, we pr uh, previously had, you know, what I think is probably a pretty typical screen in terms of the questions we asked, how many people will it impact? Are they income eligible? Um, is this required by a grant? Um, is someone else doing it? Um, you know, those kinds of questions. Um, and then we had um, some folks develop a race equity toolkit. And um, I can uh, share the link later, but basically it um, had been developed before I started about uh, four years ago. And it consisted of quite a long um, multi-page document, um, kind of asking questions, um, along the same lines as Robbie's much more concise. <laughs> I love that beautiful graphic uh, that you have of just all the key questions. But ours, what I realized when I started, my charge was, okay, you're the new advocacy director. Uh, people aren't really using this toolkit. Um, 
make them use it. How do we use it? <laughs> and um, I, uh, you know, so we had a question in our, um, we asked people to prepare a memo, right, when they propose advocacy. And it was like, uh, I don't know, something vague, like, what's your race equity analysis? And some people would say, oh, this case will affect, um, you know, people in prison who are uh, primarily people of color or whatever, you know, the things you would expect. This this aspect of the law, um, people are disproportionately um, X, Y, Z. Um, not really looking at the toolkit. What I realized is it's a curriculum. It is not, and I guess that's a message I would also like to share is don't anyone be looking at these things, these tools we've developed. And I don't think you can just, you know, plop it into your organization and have it be effective because a key part of that, of course, is having people really deeply understand what you're trying to do with this. Um, and so we tried to distill some of those key questions, not in as beautiful a way as Nebraska Appleseed, but, um, and what I've learned along the way is, um, I think we've been somewhat successful in getting everybody to be thinking about the right questions early on, because what I was really concerned about was I don't want someone to have spent a ton of time putting together this great legal analysis and this memo um, come before, you know, what was called the legal leadership team. And basically we are, you know, passing judgment and yes or no, like we could never say no after they've spent all these hours on it, you know, and the morale issues. Um, but especially when what we, the questions we were trying to ask people were things that should have been asked far earlier. You know, who did you connect with um, to come up with this idea? Why is this the solution to the problem? And, um, you know, who's, I mean, we always had clients, of course, but how did you go about identifying this client? Um, we were finding ourselves sometimes like, oh, we have this idea. We want to challenge this, whatever it might be, policy in the foster care system let's go find a client. Anyone, does that sound familiar? <laughs> like looking for a client. Um, you know, we don't, that feels wrong because it, it probably is, you know, that discomfort is rooted in something and um, it's because we're not following someone's lead um, usually, right? Um, so in any case, we wanted to, you know, that's kind of what we were facing is wanting to integrate this curriculum, um, change up the questions. Um, I said I would talk about the um, strategic planning and how that impacted it. One clear way was we had a big grant for years and years where we were, um, we had a grant to serve people who were, um, it was one of the um, area aging, forgetting what it, it stands for, AAA grants. I don't know, it's a federal grant for seniors. Um, that work, when we really took a hard look at it, it wasn't systemic, um, it was, diverting resources from being able to focus on other things more effectively. And the folks in that uh, who were working on that grant were kind of like chickens with their heads cut off, um, really scrambling to fill, fill the grant requirements. And again, that was a significant grant. And we made the decision because of our strategic planning to say no to that work. Um, and that was tough. We also started to say no to whole other areas of work that had been legacy areas um, for our organization that we were very closely affiliated with. Um, we have had a really key seminal uh, foster care case challenging the foster care system. And I, it's actually still in monitoring and we still get calls about it. We no longer 
do that work in that way, I would say. We, um, you know, we don't spend our time in the policy rooms with that agency. Um, so um, anyways, all of that to say that uh, some of the planning really starts at a higher level about what are you going to focus on to be effective. It, again, you're going to may lose people, make, you're going to have to make some difficult decisions, but I do think that focus, looking back now, we're about two years in, um, has allowed us to, to sharpen and then to develop, <laughs> I promised I'd talk about this slide, um, to really dig into this community engagement um, continuum and develop this. So um, we had a good um, reminder about um, we're not just lawyers, and that's absolutely true. And uh, one thing that changed significantly for us was to uh, create this uh, new position of advocacy and community engagement specialist is what we call it, it's a mouthful, ACEs. Um, and their job is to be that connection with community to raise these issues again early on the discussions and to help facilitate how we are going to do that connecting with community to get the answers. So part of their work is just being in community spaces regularly. It's not going in with any particular ask. It is becoming parts of those communities, those community groups, right? Um, and um, other times we do go in with um, more specific, you know, it's not, hey, you want to be a plaintiff, but, um, you know, hey, this is an issue we're aware of. Have, uh, are you all experiencing this? And just kind of more um, from a relationship building long-term perspective. And so this continuum is just an effort to identify different ways in which we engage with community. Um, so Robbie said our uh, same thing for us that our most successful work has been with our long-term community partners, Black Prisoners Caucus, the Farm Worker Union I mentioned are some of the key ones. Um, and so they're kind of in a different phase with us where we are more able to actually develop advocacy based on those relationships. So kind of in the, the last bar, this is, um, again, a continuum and depending on the group and the issue, we may be in a different stage. Maybe we're just, um, not just, but we are doing outreach and education. This uh, past year, we um, helped um, some groups host Zoom um, press conferences. Like that was the work that we did and that's what we could offer them. So it really wasn't, we're not, we weren't at the advocacy stage yet. Um, we were uh, far, um, you know, far different relationship. So anyway, I offer these up again, not that these can be just adopted easily, but just some of the tools that we've developed and um, the way that we've been trying to really integrate that, you know, the, the long race equity toolkit, because we realized it, it, we can't just have a short list of questions that will ensure that we um, get at uh, the issues. Um, you know, basically we will, um, be able to better identify the work that we should be doing if all this other work has been done as well. Thanks for sharing. And um, we're going to have one more question for Robbie, then we're going to kick off the audience um, questions. And we're going to start with the funny question because you said you said no to money. And I like, <laughs> and I'm sure like other people, because Sarah had a question about funding. So we're going to start that um, talk about funding and how funding impacts this work and how you can say no to funding and still be able to do our impact work. Um, but Robbie, you mentioned about the um, new structure um, you put in place using your guide at every meeting. Um, so maybe talk to us and we're all friends here so you can give us the honest answer, um, you know, because it sounds amazing, but talk to us about how your staff, management and board have really been 
okay with this? And do you have like buy-in from everyone? And how have you been able to do this, you know, with everyone on board and saying, yes, we want to do this. Yes, believe we believe in this work and we can get it done despite all of the, um, you know, barriers, you know, we may face in doing it. I, I would not be lying when I say I, it is a little bit disconcerting how, I guess, in every other sphere that I operate in, I receive pushback and we receive pushback from folks in everything that we do. And this is the one sphere where it has been oddly disconcerting that we have not had pushback from staff, our board. And I think it's a reflection that we we have been, <laughs> we've been hiring the the right, the people that care about uh, these issues. And so I think our, it's it's been actually really positive that we've had a staff and board buy-in about some of these procedures and changes that we've made as an organization. And I think that actually um, it, it sort of starts um, from in the, in the same sort of way that we do our organizing work from, from the ground up. So again, um, in building leadership opportunities within the organization, uh, this was not a top-down directive. The Race Equity Committee is made up of, we have about 40-ish people on staff now. Uh, and the Race Equity Committee is two subcommittees of 20 people. Um, and so in, in doing this, uh, it was pretty, pretty effective to get full staff buy-in because literally half the staff uh, was a part of making these tools. Um, and so they, they thought it was a good idea because they made it, um, which I've also found has been really successful for our organizing work that we do in, in policy advocacy or in legal work. And when you have the community buy-in at the front end, um, again, it is, it's crucial to making sure that you have buy-in throughout the process and continued advocacy uh, moving forward. And so I, I do think that is, it's been quiet, but I think that's, that's my hypothesis why people don't generally uh, disagree with themselves about the work that we're doing. I think we just have more questioning than anything, since this is more of a, an evolving process and these meetings occur uh, two times a month with our two subcommittees. Um, and we focus on different training aspects that we have as an organization. And I think to, to Janet's earlier point too, the, the real, disconcerting part about at least when we're using the tools. Um, I completely agree with Janet. It is, it would be nice if most of the questions that we were posing had identifiable answers. Um, but sometimes it's, it's indicative of the systemic racism that exists within the system um, that we're challenging. So I recently we, um, we were contemplating and moved forward on a piece of litigation related to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And the attorney that was trying to put this together, because uh, we, we had a lot of communities members reach out about this SNAP issue that we were litigating, we decided we were going to work on it. And she was putting this together and she was, she was trying to identify the the, the racial impact that the this case and this issue would have. and come to find out that our state doesn't keep uh, data on who receives SNAP by race. And we couldn't even determine the disproportionate, not in, in Nebraska at least accurately, like the actual effect on race equity this issue would have. Um, it was anecdotal experience that we'd have through the organization. We could make assumptions, but 
it, it was the discussion, I think, that was more valuable than the answer uh, in going through this. Uh, in the, she did an, an, an excellent job in putting together the proposal for the board and they fully approved moving forward and we were successful, great story. Um, but the discussion that we had about the impact that the case would have and that the impact that the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program has, what, it was a fantastic discussion. We started talking about Perora in 1996 and all of the different stereotypes that exist uh, and to this day about welfare recipients. Um, and it was, it was a super valuable tool uh, for deciding that we wanted to take this on, but also for younger or newer staff members that may not have had that context or background. Um, they may not have heard about what Perora is or uh, the discussion that Congress had, was having with Newt Gingrich in 1994. They, didn't, they may not be aware of some of those things. And so that was actually, I think, valuable from that aspect too. Um, one thing that I did wanna mention uh, that I think Janet hit on, and this is, this is an issue I think that uh, in just looking at the mirror uh, in ourselves, we've, we've had a lot of work put forward to try and address is just, diversity within our organization and how important that is. And it's been a struggle for us as an organization, um, especially within attorney's roles, uh, to, to have a diverse uh, staff. And it's, it's something that's been hyper problematic and I think super exemplifies uh, the, how these things are completely structural in nature and, and individualized and structural and across all five levels. But uh, like just, just really briefly, for example, Nebraska had uh, a ballot initiative 10 years ago where they constitutionally barred consideration of race in any employment decision um, and in any educational opportunities. And so that negatively impacted the law colleges within the state um, and being able to recruit diverse students. Um, there's an issue with diversity within the legal profession just at large and in general, and there's a really big problem with it in Nebraska. Um, and so we also have the problem when we're trying to recruit attorneys to work uh, for us that we have a lot of non-diverse uh, students, excellent students within our two state schools, but it's been an issue that they've seen and faced. Uh, we, we, unfortunately, we are in Nebraska. Uh, it is a difficult sell to get people to move to the middle of the country uh, if they are from another law school. And so oftentimes when we do get super talented undergrad interns, um, and this is actually one of the students that we had that went to Michigan, um, told me he went and toured one of the law colleges at the state and said it was great, it was really good, but I would be the only Latino male in my class if I went there. I, I just cannot get comfortable with that. I'm gonna to go to Michigan instead. And so I hope he eventually comes back to the state because we'll need him in his leadership. Uh, but those are the types of issues that I think sort of underlie how this is such a systemic problem. And so we're, we're trying to address those types of things by collaborating with both of the law schools. And I think we have 16 law firms throughout the state that have formed a diversity and inclusion uh, initiative to try and address some of these problems because it's, it's not an issue that Appleseed can solve by ourselves. It's not an issue that one of the law schools can solve by ourselves. It's not an issue that any one of us within that collective, and I'm gonna steal that term, Janet, I love it, um, that we can solve by ourselves, but it is a, it's a group and team effort and it's, on, it's deep on so many levels, but it is, I think, 
in regards to our staff, one of the issues that we we're still we still need to make a lot of progress on. I don't know how to do it, but I know we need to do it. So that is, I think, where we're at. But really quiet. We haven't had a lot of pushback. Everybody thinks race equity is pretty important at our org, so I think we're pretty lucky. Okay. Well, that's great to hear. Um, we I think you're muted. You're muted. I keep doing that. Um, I do. Thanks for sharing all of that, Robbie. And it's great to know that you know most of your staff or all of your staffs on board. And I think that's hopeful um, for the rest of us to know that. I think most most people really want to do this work, right? Is the how you do it and sort of thinking of you know what you may have to let go um, and how do you get the community engaged more and that sort of lead um, some of the initiatives. I think those are the things um, organizations are trying to work with. I do want to invite. Um, the audience into this conversation. Um, so Michelle, maybe you can stop sharing the slides and we can open it up um, for people to either um, put their questions um, and comments in the chat, or um, you can unmute yourself and speak directly if you have comments um, or any questions. Um, but I'll start us off with um, Sarah question, which was one of my questions, so I'm going to integrate them. Um, she talked about hiring personnel. Um, I think um, Robbie talked about, um, Jana talked about an equity director um, and the community organi organizers you have um, instead of lobbying for changes to systems. Um, she wanted to know, and I also want to know about funding limitations. Um, Jana has said no um, to money, so I probably want to know, you know, how do you get funding now? And then also with the grants we have that have specific requirements and deliverables. How do you get around funding when you want to do racial equity work? I think it's what Sarah's asking is what I'm interested in knowing as well. Um, so either one of you can take that on. Well, I can start. And um, again, this kind of just is a, an example of how we have to be engaged at so many different levels. But our state, Civil Legal Aid, um, did a report, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, uh, identifying, um, they kind of put together a state plan for civil legal aid and some of the target goals. And one of them was race equity. So it really, um, you know, was great to identify that. Um, I think it left a lot of groups like, how do we do that? Um, and I, it wasn't specifically funded either, but um, it has allowed us to make sure that um, the work that we're doing, I mean, it is valued and we include it in our grant reports and we are able to say, this is part of the state plan and this is what we're doing to achieve that. Um, so we help make that connection for our funders. So the funder education is a really huge piece. Again, it's not something you alone can do, but um, I think our current executive directive has, director has been um, really spending a lot of um, uh, their time on that external relations and education, you know, bringing the, the funding entities and their boards along with our work. Um, so I would say if you have capacity to, you know, be doing that, it always feels like extra. I very much acknowledge that. And I personally kind of hate doing the development work. Sorry to the development folks. Sorry, Michelle. <laughs> I know how critical it is. I do not want to do it. But, um, you know, I think just being engaged in those conversations uh, has proven to be extremely effective and necessary. Um, so there's that. Um, how do we get um, specific funding to do this? I mean, um, 
I will say our, our partner organization, um, I just learned this and was actually really surprised to learn that our state funding um, for the direct legal services. So again, we are not funded actually by our state um, legal aid funding at all goes mostly goes to this one organization. They um, just hired an equity director and my understanding is the director had to specifically fundraise for that because um, the way the numbers are calculated, they, they, they fund the state funds only um, full-time uh, legal staff, right? So they, I, I just was appalled that like, how can you ignore as just an organization, let alone a nonprofit, that the value and necessity of your infrastructure? I mean, I think they're at something like 400 people. I don't know how big your organizations are, but how can you not have an IT person and an HR director, right? So I think part of that is pushing that conversation so that um, even in the, the time I've been in my organization, our funder no longer, uh, I think, asks as much about our admin staff. We don't talk about them that way. They are our program advocacy staff, and they really are our operations. If we don't have, you know, someone dealing with the, the flood that just happened, which is unfortunately a real example in one of our offices, we can't do our work. So um, again, it, I know it feels big, but just start having those conversations. And I think that conversation is happening in the larger philanthropic um, world as well. Um, okay, I feel like I've gone off topic. Did I answer the question or the, and I mentioned the example of us turning away funding. And um, like I said, that just took, I think, a strong um, gut from our uh, controller and our executive director to realize that it was important to be able to focus on what we wanted to focus on and not be, not have the, what I call the tail wagging the dog, the, you know, our work shifting in order to meet grant requirements and instead look for grants that support the work that we think we should be doing. Sounds obvious, but it, I think is honored in the breach. <laughs> Um, Sarah, did you want to add? To no, I just I thought that was a really great answer, and it's, sometimes it's hard to see how the how the sausage is made from the funding side. So I appreciate you know the specific examples you gave. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Do we have any questions or comments? So there's a, a question in the chat from Jesse. Um, my organization serves incarcerated people exclusively and inside organizing is extremely difficult and punishable by solitary confinement and other discipline. I sometimes feel a tension between centering our clients and centering community organizing, which is taking place primarily outside prison walls. Any suggestions? I don't know if I have a great suggestion, but I have a suggestion, uh, or at least at least what we've done, because uh, we we have gotten uh, per the some of the community's requests more involved uh, in uh, issues related to incarceration in Nebraska uh, through litigation, but also through through organizing. And so I can we also have the same sort of penalty uh, where uh, we potentially. Uh, could be putting the people that we discuss uh, issues with within NDCS, which is our uh, state prison system, at a, at risk uh, through organizing within uh, community walls, and so I think, or within the NDCS walls. So at least, 
how we have sort of worked on this, um, at least from an organizing perspective, there have been a couple of really good grassroots groups that we've helped to work with and support. Um, and it's mostly, so it's called the Reentry Alliance Network. Uh, and it's a group of advocates, but it's also a lot of uh, family members of incarcerated. So uh, again, not organizing within the four walls of the, of the system, um, but those that were formerly incarcerated, those that are currently incarcerated family members. Um, and it sounds like you may be uh, doing the same thing as well. So I, I definitely feel that that tension and it's one of those populations that it's, um, it's difficult to get that same sort of community voice and level of feedback um, that you can just freely go talk to somebody uh, within another community. It's a lot more difficult to go talk to 30 people within a state prison or federal prison system. Um, we have had a longstanding, um, inst what we call institutions project of people representing folks who are incarcerated as well. That's kind of been one of our cornerstone um, areas of work. And um, I think, I mean, I hear that, that there is definitely attention um, about what to focus on and um, particularly around policy. There sometimes are um, different things um, that we're hearing from community, but like Robbie said, it often is um, the same, it's a family, it's a community. When you know we think of what prisons do is disconnect people from their community. And you know, so I guess I would just say, um, I'm, I'm just thinking about, um, and I would be curious if you wanted to elaborate on what you um, what kind of tensions you've seen. But we um, one thing we've do, done to kind of support um, making sure we're centering a couple of things that centering the needs of folks who are actually residing inside um, prisons is we have a collect call line, um, and uh, that is kind of our primary way of making sure that we are hearing directly from people inside. So that is um, kind of well known and. Um, passed around uh, and we do outreach, we do regular visits. We, um, in our state, um, there has been a really powerful group, um, the Black Prisoners Caucus I mentioned before, um, that, and there are definitely logistical challenges to connecting with the different chapters because um, we have, of course, a couple different prisons facilities around the state and it's harder for them to connect. So sometimes we are um, kind of playing the literally telephone um, and relaying information. Um, and, um, but you know, those are, we work around those constraints, but we do make that effort to uh, communicate back to them directly. Um, one thing that really was uh, hard to say something great came out of the pandemic, but was really interesting was for the first time in our legislative uh, session, we actually had folks testify from inside uh, prisons um, because it was all by video. And so again, that took work to, you know, get the right person to talk to the um, officials within the Department of Corrections to make that happen. But um, we also are fortunate that we um, have a pretty prominent um, formerly incarcerated person who just joined our state legislature this year. So she has been an incredible um, inspiration and voice and connection. Um, so yeah, those are just, just some some thoughts on things that we have done um, to make sure that we're hearing directly from people who are impacted and inside. Um, what, one other thing, again, I, if you, the person who wrote that, Jesse, I think wants to uh, elaborate on the, the, um, what the tension is, um, just uh, that uh, I do think that um, making sure to make the space and take the time is, is important. Um, yeah, and sometimes just understanding things take 
take longer. That's, I think, a characteristic of white supremacy culture I've learned is just urgency um, and being on their time. Thanks. Um, and Pat had a comment about Robbie's comment on getting SNAP data. Um, and she, I'm going to read after, she sends a link as well. Um, US, USDA has reopened the comment period for another 30 days to get public feedback to advance racial justice and equity across the agency. Um, Biden administration agency, other Biden administration agencies are doing the same. Um, so if you can comment um, so we can get the data, the information and make sure there's racial equity happening within our government, um, that would be great as well. I don't know if Pat wants to elaborate, but thanks for sharing. Any other questions and comments or comments? You're muted, Pat. You're you're being yeah, me now. You, you did fine. Um, thank you, Anne. The the issue that we raised in our comments with USDA is that um, the race and ethnicity data collection itself is so flawed, um, and it's also um, optional. And quite offensively, um, when workers when when SNAP applications, for example, don't include people don't indicate race or ethnicity, then it can be done by worker observation, which is totally bizarre that anyone would make that observation and, um, and is really ripe for um, a lot of, uh, of bias and inaccuracy. So we tackled that issue, but um, it, it's frankly, I, I think that so many people leave that space blank because they fear um, disparate treatment to begin with. So I think we have to struggle with guiding the administration through a way to collect race and ethnicity data that people feel comfortable giving so that it can be used to uh, look at the impact of certain policies, but at the same time doesn't create fear among users of government agencies that by declaring or indicating race or ethnicity, they will get inferior treatment. Um, and I think the healthcare community has, has done a better job of wrestling with that issue. Um, and the same goes for LGBTQI and other kind of areas where we want to get data to be able to look at the impact of a policy, but not put people in a position where they are uncomfortable by self-identifying. So I think that's a discussion that legal aid can weigh in on um, with state agencies in Massachusetts and frankly with the Biden administration, because they've opened the discussion in the USDA. And I think you'll see other federal entities um, doing the same. I'm not a lawyer, um, which is why I made the comment. Um, and I think it's really important just to kind of recognize that there's policy advocates that are, are really an active part of legal aid too. So thank you for, for raising that up, Wayne. Of course. Thanks for raising it up um, for us. Um, are there any questions? We do have a few minutes left and I have one sort of one and a half um, question to close it up um, with our um, presenters. So if anyone has a question you want to raise, I'll give you an opportunity to maybe one more question and then I'll ask some of the last questions. All right, I know I've learned a lot. I have like three pages of notes and I was trying to like moderate at the same time learn. So I know this has been like very fulfilling and really help us to understand um, both of your organizations and your process and to maybe help us bring this back to our organizations to think about some of the steps or conversations we should be having um, with our process. Um, so I want to sort of end this 
on um, two notes. One, and I think we talk about success, right? As you know, legal advocates, we think of success in one way. So I want to find out from you when you're evaluating, you know, every year or every couple of years, whether you've been successful in centering racial justice. How do you measure that success? Like, what does success look like? Um, or should we even care about success? You know, what exactly is our evaluation process of whether we're moving towards racial justice, whether we're moving towards racial equity, and whether we really are an anti-racist um, organization or we're doing anti-racist work. So how do you measure success? And I'm gonna sort of join that with my last question about do you have any advice for the organizations that are here in Massachusetts that are wanting to sort of center anti-racism and racial justice within our work. Robbie, we'll start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so from a technical standpoint, uh, we, we measure all of our goals. Again, we have a lot of processes now that we're bigger. Uh, whether we, we have analyzed whether we have SMART goals, so specific measurable, um, forgetting what the A in SMART is, um, but, um, but we, we do that every, we, we have goals that we lay out individually and organizationally, and as a result of our race equities teamwork, we now have SMART T goals with an IE at the end to make sure that our goals are all also inclusive and equitable. Uh, and so that's a much more broad answer, and I, I think success is probably dependent upon the, the type of issue and how you're working on it. But to me, at least, I think success on an issue in this sort of systemic uh, space with race, race equity is uh, whether, uh, whether or not the community that we're working with uh, is, is sufficiently empowered and whether the change is sustainable. And so I, I think the best way that I can answer this is maybe to describe the most successful thing that I've fortunately had a, a chance to be a part of um, since I've been at Appleseed and it's, it's regarding the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, so we started as a non-organized non, uh, non grassroots uh, organization where our legal aid organizations and Appleseed and all of our government headquartered tribes and DHHS would meet up once a month to talk about issues with ICWA um, and problems that we saw and ways to try and make things better. Uh, and then over the course of doing those grassroots meetings once a month for three years, we as a group decided it was time we were going to amend our state ICWA. We were going to fix all of these issues and non-compliance with ICWA and to try and reduce the disproportionate number of native kids in Nebraska's foster care system. We were second worst in the country. It was an eight to one disproportionality ratio and only Minnesota had a higher one. So it was not good. Uh, and the federal law had been ignored for like 30 years. So we as a group decided we wanted to do this. We spent two years um, working together, going line by line through the, our state ICWA as a group. Uh, so all of the government headquartered tribes, representatives, families, uh, health and human services representatives. Um, we introduced a bill. It was not successful the first session. Uh, and then it was successful the second session, which was great. We amended our state ICWA. Um, but it didn't just stop there. That wouldn't have necessarily been sustainable. Um, and so the coalition as a grassroots group continued to meet, uh, talk about implementation, provided trainings to caseworkers, to court staff, trained every judge in the state on ICWA, wrote the bench card for ICWA in our state. Um, but that still was not enough. And if we had just disappeared, um, 
as a grassroots coalition, then the work that we have done may not exist in 20 years. And it still may not, but way the jury's to, to be determined. So then as a grassroots coalition, we worked uh, together uh, to incorporate, uh, seek funding and um, become a, a legal entity as a, its own nonprofit. And so NICWIC is the, the result of that, which is the Nebraska Indian Child Welfare Coalition. We are a native-led, uh, native-majority board organization. And uh, just last week, uh, so we have three employees as an actual nonprofit doing this work full-time now. And just last week, uh, NICWIC uh, was announced as a finalist for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, grant, uh, studying the impact of the state bill uh, that we wrote as a group in 2015. And so, um, we are here now as a, as a successful and sustainable, I think, solution that is actually led by the community and uh, not, not uh, me, definitely mm -hmm. not me, um, but it is actually, I think, something that we work together on to, again, at the legal level. Uh, and over that time, we, we worked on, I think, two or three different amicus briefs with the NICWA coalition. Um, at the state and at the national level um, to intersect. So we've we intersected on all of Appleseed's different levels and it built power within a specific community that we worked with in our state. And that to me is success. That's an amazing example. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Jana, we'll end with you. What does success look like? And do you have any last word of advice and encouragement um, as others stick on these deaths? Yeah. Uh, so I dropped in the chat um, just uh, something that I found helpful. Um, Robbie, I don't know if this is where you got where you all use this term, but um, really want to uh, not paid by them, but the management center training is awesome. Uh, so if you all can um, utilize it, but they have a lot of free tools, including Smarty Goals. Um, so uh, just, uh, you know, I have two sort of um, very different examples of what I would say are success. Um, and um, when I'm thinking about that continuum, right? I mean, I, there's things happening at all of those levels, but um, on the kind of more interpersonal um, level, two things come to mind. One is with a um, community partner client and one is actually another staff member. Um, and the, 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 the success is when people tell you that you screwed up. So that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I think it um, for me demonstrates um, a safety that people feel in being able to share that, which is really the ultimate goal. Like, you know, it's like you want someone to tell you if you have spinach in your teeth. <laughs> and, um, uh, so for me, when we have gotten to that place with our clients, with the communities that they are sharing that feedback, um, that is a measure of success that we are building those um, relationships. So the, the examples are one is my staff member who um, basically uh, very kindly said we want to have a conversation about the way this decision was made about whether to purchase the software. So it was sort of a, you know, fairly mundane organizational thing, but I think it took a lot of bravery for them to say you made us feel like um, you didn't trust us by asking all these questions and um, question, you know, we felt questioned. And um, so we, it really generated a very useful to me discussion, I hope for them too, just to understand where you know, the power dynamics played in and sort of where I had been unclear about who had the decision-making authority. So um, I actually, it was really uncomfortable and I very much appreciated that they um, they reached out and had that conversation and they weren't off stewing in their offices and I would never know, right? Um, 
And uh, the client example is actually around um, a fundraising email that we had sent um, around Cesar Chavez Day. And um, uh, this um, and this uh, community partner um, was concerned about how we had um, kind of lionized him because wanted us to understand that there were problems with, well, I mean, I think those are not secrets, but um, had a strong opinion in particular about um, some positions that um, his union had taken on cur some current federal legislation. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But again, um, feedback that she, a very important community partner, um, was really kind enough to share with us. So my colleague says feedback is a gift. It's hard to hear it that way when it's like, here are all the things wrong with your, you know, your writing or whatever it is. But I'm really trying to embrace that because I do genuinely think it is a, um, a gift and a measure um, of success. On a much more uh, typical example uh, about race equity being um, successfully incorporated into advocacy, I want to highlight a recent um, case um, that we worked on that started off as, a, I would say, a fairly routine class action, a big one, but um, around uh, failure to pay wages to farm workers, dairy workers. Um, the team in that case, um, you know, had been really, you know, looking at, well, the real problem is not just that the employer failed to um, failed to follow the law. The problem is the law because they're excluded from um, minimum wage, right? That's in federal law and most state laws. There's, if you, we just kind of accept that, oh, you know, if you went to a regular lawyer and said, I, hey, you know, dairy worker said, hey, I'm not being paid overtime, you'd say, they'd look at the statute, say, sorry, it says, you're not entitled to it, mm. um, can't help you. But what our attorneys did was say, we're going to take you know, the pieces of the case that um, there are rights in statutes, and we're going to challenge that exclusion. Because why is there that exclusion? What is, is there any legitimate basis for just saying, you know, we're just not going to cover a certain, um, certain groups of people? And um, if folks want to look, there's more information on our website, the case is Martinez, um, but basically they crafted a constitutional argument. And what I think was also really powerful was the amicus work um, around the racist history of the Fair Labor Standards Act, how that got incorporated into state law. And ultimately that, um, so we really had two things working for us, um, the lack of any really legitimate reasonable basis for this at all, and an opening in our state law to make that argument that, um, you know, it's a, it, our state constitution is a little different than the federal equal protection. So it gave us a little more room to make that argument. And um, anyway, it's, uh, I, again, I feel like, and then another part of the success is that people got it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think we could have very easily um, faced, you know, it sounded all very rational, the employer's um, argument, you know, they're like, hey, it's seasonal. We just can't afford to, you know, all that. But we, um, a star's really aligned. We had a, we have a Latina, um, Latinx justice who gave this incredible monologue from the bench, just incredible. And to the question of, um, you know, uh, this, this argument that, uh, you just can't possibly pay overtime because it's seasonal and it would cost too much, he says. And what is the season for milking cows? <laughs> just like mic drop, fabulous. I still want to get it on a t-shirt. But anyway, so um, all that to say that the, really the digging into the history to 
telling that story. And it's all about race. It's um, based in, you know, Southern New Deal Democrat politics. How are you going to get this law passed? Well, you're going to agree to not cover, you know, the then really the black um, sharecroppers. So anyways, um, yeah, you can be be creative if you have it in your mind that you're looking for that angle. How are you going to tell the story? Who is it impacting? What's the history? Why is this the law? I think um, your advocacy will shift um, and you will be on that journey to being um, more equitable and achieving race equity in your work. Thank you all so much. Um, I know I learned a lot. This was an awesome conversation and gave us a lot of tools and insights into how to get this work done, um, as well as hanging in there, right? Because it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So on behalf of the collective, which I think is our word for today, thank you all and thank you for inviting me into this space with you. Um, I'll turn it over to Michelle. I don't know if you have any announcements, um, but I want to thank the audience for joining us here for this conversation as well. Thank you so much, Wayona. And thank you also, Janet and Robbie. Uh, many of us really want to push the envelope to center anti-racism in our work. And you've given us concrete examples of what that looks like. And it's also so great to hear from our colleagues in other parts of the country. So thank you so much for, for being here. These have been over the last three days, powerful, important and sometimes difficult conversations. And as you will recall, Tanisha Taylor and Kimberly Jones and other speakers have reminded us the importance of making sure we have balance in our lives and in our work. So to that end, I wanna remind you as we wrap things up, there are two wonderful fun events to come to end the conference. At three o'clock, we have Drinks with Danny. I know Janet mentioned the concept of lawyers on tap. Maybe this is a little twist on, <laughs> on what that is, uh, but please join Danny. She has a cocktail and also a mocktail. So all are welcome there. And uh, lastly, we'll wind up at four with wind down yoga with Rachel. And some of you may have had a chance to do morning yoga with her yesterday. She is absolutely wonderful. And it's a great way to sort of breathe through all this. So again, thank you all and you know for listening, for presenting, um, for the great questions and let's keep talking. Take care. <laughs>